Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Charles Coleman, a lawyer turned law professor turned crypto investor and legal strategist. We will discuss his path to crypto investing and his thoughts on the dynamics of the NFT ecosystem. So welcome to the show, Charles. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. It's really, I think, going to be a great addition to this series looking at the NFT ecosystem, how it works and, and where it came from. Um, just so people have a sense of, of your perspective, uh, you've had a really interesting path to, to getting in, into the line of, uh, into the line of inquiry that you're in right now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and kind of give the audience a sense of kind of who you are and where you came from. Sure. I mean, do any of us really know who we are? Right. But the, uh, the start of all of this was, a career in IP, right? You know, I got interested in intellectual property in law school. Um, Tim Wu's copyright class had a lot to do with that, but I was also a musician and songwriter before law school. And so I had some interest in copyright from that perspective. Um, you know, tried to move toward that in practice, worked at a large firm for a while, then went off to open my own smaller firm that represented artists, fashion designers, musicians, some tech startups. And I found myself encountering a lot of sort of interesting esoteric issues of first impression that uh, those clients couldn't necessarily afford to fully explore um, in litigation or whatnot. So I started writing about some of those issues and that led me to academia, um, did explore some of those issues in scholarship, did a visiting assistant professor position at BAP at NYU uh, for three years. And then um, I was at the University of Hawaii as an assistant professor for about four years and taught mostly intellectual property there, but also a number of other subjects that now are coming in pretty handy, uh, like conflict of laws, First Amendment, some other things. Um, I left the University of Hawaii for a variety of reasons. Um, and one thing that I immediately noticed when I left is that there was this incredibly interesting phenomenon that I hadn't really been paying attention to. You know, I think sometimes law professors can get fixated on what they research and, you know, to the exclusion of some other interesting things that are going on in society. And it takes a lot. I think there's a learning curve for crypto that makes pe some people reluctant to get into it at all. And especially if you, if you are expected to publish regularly, you know, devoting the, the time up front to learning about it when you're not sure if it will yield anything in terms of scholarship, that would have been a deterrent for me while I was still in a, an academic position. So I've been able to do that since I left academia and I've just found it more and more interesting. And um, now I'm able to do this full time, which uh, I really enjoy. So what was it that about the kind of crypto sphere that sparked your interest? Like, what did you first notice? What did you learn as you initially sort of started studying and, and engaging with, with that space and sort of where has it taken you? 
I mean, I guess the reason I got interested in it is the least interesting one, which is Bitcoin was going up a lot at the end of last year. And I was like, what is this? Right. Like many people. Um, so PayPal was one of the first sort of major non-crypto sites to make it easily available. I was like, I'll buy $10 of this. Right. And like for many people, it quickly, you know, sort of exploded from there. I mean, not the, the price though the price did explode, but in terms of the interest. Right. And I was like, okay, what is Bitcoin? I read a lot about how it worked. Um, well, what's, what's Ethereum? What's Ether, which is also on the PayPal site. Um, and then I discovered the scope of what the people behind Ethereum and a lot of other people in the space were trying to do. And it was daunting at first, you know, I had to read up a lot on the infrastructure and I mean, the history short as it is though, you know, the cryptography and certain aspects go back further. Um, and then, you know, there are all these competing blockchains that people who are trying to do what Ethereum does. And we can talk about that if you like better than, than Ethereum. So it was, you know, it was sort of about better investing and intellectual curiosity at the same time. So as a lawyer and legal scholar, were there particular sources or avenues into understanding uh, the crypto sphere that you found especially helpful, uh, maybe less than helpful, um, sort of what were the angles that really spoke to you and were useful in developing your understanding of what was going on? I mean, I read some of the main texts that are sort of frequently cited, but a lot of them are a couple of years old and maybe don't go into the level of detail that I would now need or, or appreciate. That doesn't mean that they weren't useful, but you know, I think it, one of the main books is, I think it's called Blockchain and the Law. Um, and it is helpful for someone who's just getting into the field. I found um, Angela Walsh's work on sort of decentralization theater or how, you know, decentralization may not mean anything in a, in the sense that many people use the term to be very helpful. And maybe it may be more critical of what I was reading. It's not that I think most people are using the term cynically, but rather that some of the utopian ideas about what crypto and blockchain can do may be at odds with some of the realities and the bottlenecks and the concentrations of power that Angela Walsh has written about. Um, so I found that helpful. Um, you know, I, I don't come from a securities law background, so in many ways that's the least interesting aspect to me. But I have read some some work on that uh, those issues. I just I don't find it as, uh, nearly as interesting, and I think that they're going to be resolved probably in the near future, one way or another. So I just am not that interested in debating at length whether something satisfies the Howey test, particularly when, as I've tweeted repeatedly, the current Supreme Court is ready to append a lot of jurisprudence. I say that without positive or negative spin. I just, it, they've demonstrated that that's true in a variety of areas in some ways that are good, in some ways that are bad. And especially in the area of agency deference. I just don't know that what this SEC thinks right now matters a whole lot. You're speaking my language there. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get too off topic. I, and this is not about Gary Gensler, but I, like many people in space, I'm frustrated by the way the SEC has been proceeding. And also from a sort of pol- political perspective, from the apparent indifference that Gary Gensler has shown to the backlash that is sort of overzealous and, and often mercurial crusade could have for a variety of important societal values, right? It, 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 I think it requires a sort of macro impact litigator type understanding, but it's actually quite a short jump from the Supreme Court issuing an adverse ruling in a case where the SEC has overreached and, you know, not followed proper procedure to eliminating agency deference. I mean, some people think that's already effectively happened uh, through te- the textualist so-called Chevron step zero, right? Um, actually, I shouldn't throw out terms like that. I'm not an admin professor and I don't, I, I don't know if I, I know what that means, right? But what I have noticed is that this court is... Ha- it doesn't find things to be ambiguous all that often, which is surprising because all language is ambiguous. Uh, but um, it's convenient not to find it to be ambiguous. So <laughs> sometimes courts uh, use statutory interpretation to resolve those ambiguities. I mean, if you really have to use a variety of canons um, that no one's ever heard of, most lawyers included, to resolve the plain meaning of a statute, how plain is it? I taught statutory interpretation uh, at the University of Hawaii too, and it's just laughable. Um, these tools that are used to interpret, in quotation marks, what a statute means, which is not to say that I think legislative history is without problems. I'm not going to be able to resolve these issues, right? People have been debating them for decades, but I do think that it's a bit funny to talk about plain meaning of statutes that nobody has necessarily read in some cases and which certainly no one was thinking about in a particular context. But yeah, people have talked about this ad nauseum, so I won't get too much into that either. I do think it's helpful though, if if you could maybe talk a little bit about those frustrations from the perspective of the community of people engaged in this space, because I think that there's a sense from the outside that the objections are mostly about being regulator, about any regulation happening in the first place. And my sense is that it might be more complicated than that. And that there's a, at least a layer in which people are frustrated by the refusal of the regulators and the people directing the regulators to understand what's, or even try to understand what's happening. Yeah. The, I mean, those are great questions and I'll, I'll try to sort of take them one at a time. So, I think part of the resistance is just the desire for no regulation in the space, right? But but that was also true at the outset of the internet, right? There were people who wanted it to be a law-free zone. There is work on the sort of extreme libertarian ethos of Bitcoin. Unfortunately, even some of the people who have had interesting and insightful things to say about that have perhaps inadvertently extended that to the rest of the blockchain and crypto space, that ethos is not necessarily shared by everyone in the space. The frustrations over the SEC not having clearly 
laid out what it considers to be a security. Some of those are similar to frustrations that I recall seeing in practice from artists who weren't able to determine in advance whether something would be found to be a fair use, right? And legal academics and lawyers and creative communities have gone over these issues many times. You know, should we have specific safe harbors? Are those safe harbors going to become the only... um the only fair uses that courts recognize, right? Are they going to basically displace catch-all categories, right? They sort of almost do by definition. But then fair use has to be flexible by definition. And I think that's probably what the SEC would say, right? That the Howey test is a recognition or the Howey test reflects a recognition that securities vary from one context to another. And the statute, I'm sure they would say, was written to accommodate changing circumstances. That may be true to some degree. Some of the things that we've seen in the crypto space do look a lot like things that are traditionally regulated by the SEC. Many do not. But my point right now is that I think a lot of people are frustrated at the way the SEC has proceeded in the same way that they're frustrated by the way at least U.S. law proceeds in general, which is uh, do what you're going to do and then a court will decide later, right? And that's sometimes difficult for individuals and corporate entities alike to accept. And that often results in various chilling effects. But in the crypto space, what we've seen is less of, the chilling effects and more of just the going ahead with it. And part of that I think is just because there are so many projects that often it seems to be worth it to sort of roll the dice. Part of it is that a lot of them are not based in the U S and so even without a sort of uh, careful jurisdictional or choice of law analysis, they, I think feel fairly confident proceeding with what they want to do. I did just read that a figure who's fairly prominent in um, the crypto space was served by the SEC at a conference. And you know, that may be because unless they served him personally, they couldn't obtain jurisdiction over him. Um, the There's been some debate about whether or not he was actually served, whether it was a stunt, but the SEC has shown interest in expanding its jurisdiction beyond perhaps what the current Supreme Court is comfortable with, not only substantively, but also procedurally in terms of what U.S. law can fairly be applied to. And when it's crossed the line into extraterritorial application uh, without clear congressional intent in quotation marks, which is almost never found. Right. So, these issues have sort of all come to a head with people being excited about a phenomenon that they feel most lawmakers don't understand and often have mischaracterized frequently for political ends. And the argument is often made that anyone who is in the space is happy with it right? That the only people who are complaining about it are people outside the space. 
I think a response you sometimes hear is, well, it poses a threat to the, the stability of the financial sector as a whole. I don't think the SEC is going to make any difference in that regard, as various episodes in recent American history have shown, um, which isn't to say that I'm opposed to regulation, but I do think that the SEC and especially Gary Gensler should think much more carefully about the potential backlash to their cavalier claims of jurisdiction and, and this sort of like, come to us and we'll tell you if what you're doing is regulated approach, which is not only just sort of absurd on its face and not realistic, but starts from a presumption that everything everyone does is prima facie within their jurisdiction. And not even true. I mean, as I can attest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's to some degree, it's the hammer and nail situation, right? If you are the head of the SEC, you're looking at things from the perspective of what the SEC can regulate. Unless there's some competing uh, incentive, right? Uh, some potential penalty for overreaching, then people and entities are likely to overclaim their authority. So lawyers tend not to take on clients whose matters they know nothing about in terms of the uh, relevant substantive law because there are potential uh, malpractice suits, potential uh, disciplinary actions, and potential reputational consequences, right? Well, Gary Gensler seems relatively indifferent to the reputational consequences, but there, there at present is no cost really to that overreaching that Gary Gensler is apparently aware of. There is, however, a substantial cost in the macro sense to every instance of agency overreach. And that cost is a judicial backlash and potentially a public opinion backlash too, though I think that's probably less of an issue right now than a judicial backlash. Um, I'm shocked at how cavalier the SEC has been given the current jurisprudential attitude toward agencies and agency deference and people publishing books like, is the administrative state unconstitutional? Things like that, right? I mean, you wouldn't know that any of that is even happening from the way the SEC is acting. And I, I understand that there's a reluctance to dignify some of those positions by changing one's behavior in response to them. At the same time, any entity that isn't happy with a district court decision um, in a case like the SEC versus Ripple is going to appeal. And this, you know, such a case could well end up before the Supreme Court and this Supreme Court could well issue a broad ruling that could impact not only the SEC's authority, but agency authority in general. I'm not an administrative law scholar, but that's clear to me as a litigator and as someone who understands that different areas of law are related in ways that aren't always apparent to people who are focusing narrowly on their own corner of the legal universe. 
So changing directions a little bit, the, the big story of the last nine months or a year or so has been the kind of sudden emergence of a really large and surprisingly liquid market for non-fungible tokens or, or NFTs. And I wonder from your perspective of someone who's engaging in this space as a lawyer, as a scholar, as someone who's an investor as well, um, sort of what do you make of this new development? Sort of how do you see NFTs working within the kind of broader crypto environment? And what do you think is happening? So the first thing that I'll point out is that there's surprisingly little overlap between people who invest in what they would call crypto, but what NFT types would call fungibles, right? So uh, Bitcoin, Ether, Cardano, the the main coins and potentially tokens that I thought constituted crypto until I got involved in the NFT space earlier this year. And a lot of people in the NFT space who have no interest in fungibles at all, except insofar as they're necessary to pay for um, non-fungible tokens and potentially get paid in um, some sort of crypto that you can then convert for fiat and pay your bills with. So they're very different. The cultures are very different. I think there's a lot less anti-regulation attitude in the NFT space, in part because artists don't want to do away with copyright for the most part. Uh, So when the law has failed artists, it's often been because of a lack of regulation, as in the instance of Dua de Suite and um, Christie's and Sotheby's litigating to narrow and for all practical purposes, nullify California's Dua de Suite law, right? So in that sense, NFTs are an alternative to regulation that impose controls. Just this week, uh, an entity called Manifold.xyz rolled out a royalty registry that um, is essentially an attempt to standardize and create a, a reference guide to NFTs and the resale royalty guidelines associated with them. That imposes, at least for the entities who, whether through um, pressure on the marketplace, public opinion, or potentially legal action, I I could foresee a number of costs of action that would actually raise totally different legal issues than the Dwight Suite case that I mentioned earlier. But the goal for a lot of these artists is to impose more sort of um, speed bumps along the way where they capture the value of their work at different points in its life. Songwriters have for a long time counted on revenue through royalties that from their perspective flow automatically, even though there are a lot of people behind the scenes 
monitoring and creating lists and tracking um, performances in the legal sense. Uh, and artists haven't necessarily been able to do that because once a physical work was sold, there was no effective way to track it. And even if there were, there was no legal device in the U.S. to profit from a resale, which often can be much, much greater than the initial sale. Now, copy leftists would say that's just the way that the first sale doctrine works, right? There are no encumbrances on a physical object of any sort once it leaves the initial seller's hands. I guess my perspective is if courts are going to recognize licenses that effectively constrain what would-be resellers of software can do, then why can't artists have that same benefit, right? It, it seems to me you either, either have to allow for non-alienability across the board or not. But there's no clear reason to me why software should be in a privileged position uh, relative to creators of culture that add a lot of value to our lives. And I think one thing that NFTs could do and in some sense are already doing is to level the playing field a little bit by creating a technological and social remedy to the perceived lack of legal remedies in this area. From your perspective, when people invest in the NFT market or when they buy particular NFTs, what's what's your sense of what they understand themselves to be buying, what the community understands them to be buying? And is it one thing or many different things? That's a great question. I think that public opinion and lawyers alike misunderstands what people think they're getting. NFT buyers I'm sure there are exceptions, but in my view, most NFT buyers don't think they're acquiring the copyright to anything, right? Mm -hmm. What they think they're acquiring, I think, is a right to display some kind of digital analog to the display for copyright lawyers who are listening to this, to the section 109 display right that comes along with buying a but work of visual art. Um, and I think there's general agreement on the types of public displays that are acceptable after you purchased an NFT and types that aren't. So IP, IP law is there in the background maybe, but most people understand that there will be social sanctions if they go beyond displaying an NFT that they bought. And I use NFT to refer to the work that the NFT is actually linked to, but of course, the NFT is just an entry on the blockchain. The NFT is in some ways analogous to a certificate of authenticity. It refers to something which can be a painting or a sculpture or whatever it might be, but it's not attached to that thing, right? It points to that thing. NFTs are analogous to certificates of authenticity in that way. and what they give you 
is some form of ownership. It's not IP ownership, but I think the vast majority of NFT buyers understand that. I also think that many, many NFT buyers are interested in buying these things anyway, even if they don't plan to resell them. And part of the reason is, in my view, the reason that people patronize the arts in ways that uh, don't necessarily confer ownership over anything at all. An example that I sometimes give is naming rights. When someone donates money um, in exchange for having their name placed on a building, they aren't acquiring the building and they understand that. They're not even acquiring the right to enter the building at outside of you know certain hours for certain purposes. What they're acquiring is a potentially legally enforceable, though rarely litigated, right to have their name displayed on the building. They can sell the naming rights, potentially, just like you can sell an NFT to somebody else who wants to be associated with a work. With, with a work. And there's a greater market for s- speculating in that type of resale than in, in the NFT space than there is in the naming rights space. But I think often the motivation is the same. It's not so you, you're not, you're not buying an NFT so that you alone can put a work up in your house. You're buying recognition that you appreciate a work in the same way that the Medici's commissioning a public work that everyone could view were paying for both the recognition that comes along with that and the continued creation of works like that. So, you know, I think it's premature to say that this augurs a return to the patron of the arts model, but I do see that in many parts of the NFT space. Now I should say that I'm much more focused on the high end of the market than I am on I, I won't call them meme NFTs because I think there's more to some of them than that, but the avatar or PFP picture for profile space, I'm less interested in that. I think that's much more like maybe membership in a club or a, you know, a brand, right? It actually kind of reminds me of high school and, you know, the, the brand of the month, right? Some of those went on to be valuable as vintage items. A lot didn't, but I'm less interested in that, at least until there's some kind of interesting trademark lawsuit over it, which will raise Daystar type issues. Um, I, as a lawyer, Daystar was always one of my favorite cases um, because it's a sort of Rorschach test and lawyers, at least some lawyers like that. But the part of the market, as I said, that I'm interested in is the part that, in my view, represents a continuation of, and at least aspirationally, an improvement on the existing art market, which has failed artists in a lot of ways. Well, so you've been involved in a bunch of different aspects of the NFT market, but I've seen you talking a lot recently about the the rare community. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is, how it works, sort of what the concept behind it is and why you find it interesting. Cause it's, it's new to me. Right. So 
much of what I've said is through the prism of super rare, which is sort of akin to Gagosian or David Zwerner, you know, these galleries in the physical world that have a roster of artists and curate exhibits that collectors then come to see and buy from. Much of the NFT space is uncurated. Oh, you hear a lot about OpenSea. OpenSea is sort of like the eBay of NFTs, but without eBay's money-back guarantee, if what you buy turns out to be fraudulent in some way. Um, a different business model and approach to selling artworks authenticated by NFTs or associated with NFTs is the super rare curated model. Super rare was founded in 2018 and it's only ever sold single editions or one slash one, one ones as they're called of works by artists who have applied to super rare and been accepted. Now that's against the, the ethos of some people in crypto who want everything to be open in every way. We don't necessarily need to discuss the merits of that, except to say that some people have always and probably will continue to find it useful to have the universe of art or culture curated for them in some way. And once an entity has cultivated reputation for doing that, then people go to that entity uh, and sometimes pay a premium for work sold by the entity. That's the market niche that Super Rare occupies. It's actually fairly unique in the NFT space because most of the platforms are uncurated. So I actually first got involved with Super Rare when they did what's called an airdrop. That's a way of distributing tokens that reward people who have used a platform, in this case as artists or collectors, um, through the distribution to all of the crypto wallets, as they're called, um, of a large number of tokens that can then be used to vote on matters of consequence uh, for the project. Super Rare is one of several cultural projects that started as a centralized entity, essentially traditional company, and decided for various reasons to decentralize over time, starting with an airdrop. The people who have the tokens now and the people who acquire those tokens either on the secondary market or have rights to the vesting of tokens over time, like venture capitalists and current Super Rare Labs employees, have a say in how the platform evolves. And some of these platforms have very large treasuries now because they've been in operation for a long time. And in the case of Super Rare, because each resale of an NFT generates royalties for the artist and the platform, right? You get this sort of long tail of revenue that's kind of akin to songwriter royalties, but potentially more powerful because each resale, as I said, tends to increase in value. So we're talking about uh, a large amount of money in some of these treasuries of what people often call DAOs. Uh, 
decentralized autonomous organizations. In many ways, the name is unfortunate. They vary in their degrees and types of decentralization. They're not generally autonomous in the way that the people who coined the term had in mind. Those people, I think, were in general sort of code maximalists, and they wanted everything to be automated uh, such that there wouldn't necessarily need to be debate. It turns out, in my view, that though not surprisingly, also in my view, that every entity that's really undertaking any kind of activity requires human maintenance and innovation at various points. And that's often called off-chain governance, so discussions among token holders about the direction that a platform will take. Um, There is not yet, as far as I can tell, a single book on best practices for these DAOs. I'm sure some lessons from traditional corporate governance might be useful, but these DAOs are also different from traditional companies in that profit maximization is not necessarily their main objective and certainly not their main objective when it comes to culture DAOs. Um, I guess everybody involved wants to have more money or at least the same amount of money at the end as they had in the beginning. And most hope to do well while doing good. But people who really get involved in these DAOs hope to get more out of it than just money. Sure, some people acquire governance tokens and just hold them and wait for them to appreciate in value. But the most successful DAOs have been those with an engaged group of token holders who believe strongly in what the platform is doing. And my belief and hope is that super rare by airdropping tokens to artists and collectors, which were resold by those who didn't want to be involved in the DAO to people on the secondary market, like me who do want to be involved, um, that the incentives are aligned to create a scalable, ambitious platform for uh, the next generation of, I don't want to say gallery auction house or marketplace because it's none of those things exactly as features of each but um i'll say platform for the curation distribution and fair compensation of um, art and artists so that's what that's how i see super rare though i'm sure if you ask 10 people who are involved in the super rare doubt they'll have 10 different answers for what they hope to get out of it well so Charles, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on sort of what you, as a particular participant in the Super Rare DAO, as well as in potentially other similar kinds of spaces, see as sort of where you'd like to see these, these projects going, what you think the most important kind of projects and considerations to keep in mind are and sort of what your hopes or kind of thoughts are on the kind of the near future of the space. Yeah. So I, I think that some DAOs already are very important and many more will become very important. And one of the reasons is that when you have people contributing time and expertise from all over the globe, um, in pursuit of a, hopefully a shared vision, uh, then some of the barriers to participation or some of the uh, 
sort of traditional disincentives to participating in corporate governance disappear, at least conceivably, right? Some of the problems in corporate governance can reappear if a DAO isn't run properly, though, of course, properly is a subjective term. Um, but if a DAO is operated in a way that's consistent both with its initial vision and it's the token holders wishes, at least the majority of token holders, then it can become something akin to a huge club with a lot of financial power behind it. And I can't think of a, a good example of a, you know, a pre-crypto version of that. Yes, there are fraternities, some of which have headquarters in DC and may have large endowments from you know, previous members, things like that. But in many ways, at its best, a DAO can, I think, feel like a scaled up version of the college acapella groups that I was so dedicated to. People pass through them, they dedicated their time and skills to these groups. The groups had their own treasuries, which were passed on from year to year. Each person in the group benefited from money that was generated by the group's collective efforts, whether through trips or other, other sorts of benefits, um, but benefits other than just dividends, right? The stock market has a very narrow conception of, of the types of rewards that, that should be paid to stakeholders. DAOs can reward people in much more diverse ways. So in that way, they're kind of like cooperatives, they're kind of like clubs, but no one really knows what they are yet because they've just started. A lot of people, though probably some of them, uh, including me, have, have a financial stake in, in saying it. A lot of people think DAOs are going to be the next big thing in crypto. Um, it's a bit inaccurate in the sense that some DAOs are already a big thing and have been a big thing. And I, I could talk about those with you if we had the time. But um, what we've seen so far is, is DAOs in decentralized finance or DeFi. I'm much more interested in culture DAOs. DAOs in cultural fields are newer than DeFi DAOs. But I think in some ways they could surpass DeFi DAOs in active membership and potentially even revenue because like an acapella group, people want to be involved in cultural activities. When, when people who were in law school, you know, join clubs, some sure some people join the future, um, Securities Lawyers of America Club. But in my experience, people tend to gravitate much more toward the fashion law club, you know, the art law club, things like that. And when I was in practice, I certainly got a lot more emails from law students interested in practicing IP and fashion law and art law than I did when I was practicing whatever it was that I practiced that the large law firm um, I started at. Yes, part of that is because I was an associate at the law firm and I ran the 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 small law firm that I started. But I think in general, cultural activities just inspire 
more passion in many people than um, than financial activities. And so I think once people see how you can combine the most interesting and potentially lucrative aspects of DeFi DAOs and the passion that cultural projects tend to inspire, you know, it could be a recipe for really groundbreaking organizations that more fairly compensate people who are adding value than a lot of traditional organizations have. Amazing. Well, Charles, thanks so much for for joining the program today. This was a great conversation. I, I learned a lot and I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for having me. Shame on you, cause my man is the best.